So, uh, yes. So my name's Melissa, uh, technology management. So I have actually two questions that are not related, but I've been saving them up. So the first question is what you were just talking about, Tony. Um, is there a danger in looking at the aggregate data and making policies that are looking at a larger data set, but then ignoring and not necessarily accounting for the people who don't respond to what may be the best medication or what the data seems to be indicating, but in medicine, everything is so individualized. So that's the first question that I'm going to ask. Um, yeah, so there's always this question of outliers, right? And these, all these bundle payment programs, all these policy decisions around what do you do about the patient who doesn't respond or the really particularly sick patient who, if you know if you do the surgery on them, your costs will go you know, out the roof and you'll potentially lose money on that patient. And so what the policy guys at Medicare have done is create different what they call risk tracks. So they'll say, and this gets back to all, it's all about policy and setting the rules for this payment scheme, right? In the fee-for-service game, there's not too many rules. If you did it, you get paid for it. And the more you did, the more you get paid. People get that, right? So they'll do more and more. You get paid more and more. And that's, that's a really simple game to play. You send a bill in, and if it's a real bill, you get your money. And bundle payments programs where you're making some value judgments on what is a valuable service and what the cost should be and how you set a price, you get into the drama of setting a price and, and, and looking at these outliers. So there are some things that policymakers have done. They call it sort of... Um, truncation, where the top 2% or the top 5% or the top 10% of your most difficult patients aren't included in your bundle, right? So there's ways they, they sort of make it more friendly for physicians and patients. So these are policy decisions they're making where your, your lowest cost 5% patients and your lowest, most expensive 5% patients aren't included in your bundle. So that's one way they can manage, you know, these types of things where someone's very, very sick um, and will be a very difficult patient. Another way they do it is they, they risk adjust the price, right? So if you go in there with you know, diabetes and, and five other conditions, the price for that, the quote unquote cost to deliver for that patient will be much higher than if the patient was a normal healthy patient. So bundle payments tries to address these, these outliers or difficult cases by truncation and discounting those people from your pool of patients, but also um, risk adjusting the price. And they can do that with a lot of the data they've got, but that's, that's their methods right now uh, to kind of address those, those situations. So people can have access to care and doctors aren't um, afraid of administering care to these patients. And, and the, the, on the question of non-responders from a clinical trial standpoint and not a, a, a complementary to a payer standpoint, uh, what's going on now is uh, an optimization of clinical trials with what I would call digitally enabled patient centricity. It's a mouthful, but basically what it is, is um, real life, uh, real world drug monitoring while you have a, while you have a clinical trial uh, with patients actually multiple sclerosis wearing a Fitbit or whatever, measuring their, uh, their activity uh, every day, et cetera. And that gives you uh, patient reported outcomes that help in what's called adaptive trials, meaning that you don't wait until the end of the trial to figure out uh, who the non-responders are. You see it as we go, as, uh, and, and you adjust the dose, or you adjust the medication, or you, 
um, you also uh, draw a genetic profile of those non-responders, and that helps you uh, possibly exclude uh, these from the uh, from from the uh, data in your trial. It's uh, if you've seen anything about BMS, you'll see on Monday of last week we announced <coughs> uh, results of a trial called Checkmate Two Two Seven, and Two Two Seven is in lung cancer, and we had a trial in the August two thousand sixteen where patients weren't responding. We worry about non-responding patients because uh, that's how do we figure out what's uh, what's happening. One of the things we found was there was a new biomarker around the number of mutations a cancer cell has, which was far more predictive around whether somebody would respond to treatment or not. Uh, and as a result, we actually got a very positive outcome of that, which will treat many more patients with lung cancer. So that's data we're going to present in a couple of months at one of the big medical meetings, but that's an example of an adaptive clinical trial. Uh, we saw the results, we adapted some of the trial design, we increased the number of patients, and as a result, we have a new insight into how we can treat cancer patients. You had another question. I did. So the other question is regarding, I'd like to get uh, some insight on your thoughts of Apple getting into the personal health record business and how that may be able to change, A, how patients can take better command of their own data, but also the challenge of how how to normalize that data considering you may, no matter how much you as a patient are diligent, if you actually take a look at your different health records, I personally have like a dozen of them myself, and no matter what you try, they do not align. Right. So if you have a single place that's going to try to import data from multiple systems, that raises a whole other set of, of challenges. So I'm exactly. curious about your, your yeah. thoughts about the issue. I can speak to that because I interviewed one of the people I, for my book. I interviewed uh, half of people from Silicon Valley and the other half from, for Biopharma, and I interviewed the health care at uh, Apple. What's going on with Apple now is they're transitioning. When they came out with the Apple Watch, they made a pilgrimage to the FDA to say, fitness, health, you know, wellness, uh, we, we don't do anything medical. You Please don't regulate us. <laughs> Silicon Valley is terrified of, uh, of the FDA. Now what they're doing is they're filing patents for medical applications and they are re, you know, resigning themselves to the fact that they are going to be regulated. They are uh, getting uh, more into the medical uh, field. But what's going on is that when you visualize the healthcare landscape, the holy grail is a seamless continuum that goes from patients to physicians to EHRs. That's not happening now. It's developing uh, itself in vertical silos. It's not developing horizontally because you've got a bunch of barriers. At, the, at the, your level, at the consumer level, you've got unfiltered data from the Apple Watch. Uh, you've got a first barrier with your doctor. Uh, my colleagues uh, are terrified of all of those data. They have a tsunami of data coming from patients with unfiltered uh, step counts or whatever. Uh, they don't have the infrastructure to deal with them. They are worried about liability. They're worried about reimbursement. So that's the first barrier there. And then uh, between you and the EHR, there are patient portals now. Everybody agrees that they're clunky. There's no synchronicity. You go to a patient portal and you're going to have uh, a test result and no interpretation. So that can give you a heart attack. <laughs> the doctor isn't going to be available to interpret it anytime soon. <coughs> Uh, and the EHRs don't talk between each other, let alone uh, horizontally. So uh, at Mount Sinai, one of you is at Mount Sinai, seven hospitals, do you have any idea how many EHR we have? 17, right? And they don't communicate. That's one, that's one hospital system. Uh, 
So the, the, the situation is that there has to be some sort of streamlining from the patient to the doctor to the EHR. There is one circumstance in which you have it, which is a clinical trial. Uh, there, everything is controlled. But um, I'll, I'll turn it to, to Simon. Beyond the clinical trial, we don't have that horizontal uh, uh, connectivity. Yeah, no, I think you said that really well. <laughs> Hi, my name is Anna. I'm also an applied analytics uh, student. Thank you all for being here. So I guess I'll have a question um, following up on the interoperability issue. So do you see any solutions in your clients or in the companies in the industry that are trying to uh, solve this problem? So I know that a lot of data, there is a lot of data in healthcare, but a lot of it is fragmented and siloed. So as we were talking about that EHRs don't talk among each other. So is there any solution or technologies that exist or you know, could be created that uh, could solve this problem. And I've read some uh, research uh, out of MIT on blockchain applications in healthcare. So just wanted to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Just one blockchain, I think is more uh, Tony, but, but uh, there's a group of hospitals that has formed a consortium where their EHRs are actually communicating <coughs> with each other. Uh, just to give you an idea of the international situation, in a country like Denmark, you have much more single-payer system. You have much more communication between EHRs. Uh, in France, where I, I, I go frequently, uh, you still you have the same EHR systems that we have here, uh, Cerner, Epic, Asina, etc. Even within that single-payer system, they don't talk to each other. Right. Mm -hmm. So even internationally, you, you, Europe is generally ahead in terms of, uh, of electronic communications, but, but in this area, not really. Uh, probably better in England, and I'll, I'll turn it to Simon. Uh, I think I've been in the States for too long. Uh, <laughs> having been here for 19 years, uh, I haven't got the deep insights into the UK healthcare system. Uh, but it is the, how, how you get the seamlessness, how you make sure you've got clear ethics, and how you make sure you've got uh, data privacy for each individual. Uh, is really important. But you're coming from an incredibly fragmented system yeah. uh, that has to come together. So we developed a product because we had to solve this problem of tracking a patient over 90 days. Because in a bundle payment program, the doctor basically signs up to take care of you for 90 days. They do the surgeon, the surgeon does the surgery, and they're responsible for everything that happens to you in 90 days. Mm -hmm. So there's one person who's responsible. And the problem that was kind of a basic dumb problem was... We want to know where the patient was for the next 90 days. Like, wasn't something crazy. Just, like, where's Simon for the next 90 days? Uh, uh, you know, it probably sounds pretty easy, but for these patients who are maybe Medicare patients, knowing where they were for 90 days was, was the biggest scary part about these physicians taking on these patients because there is this lack of interoperability. If the patient goes to visit, um, even like you were saying at Mount Sinai, where the surgeon... Surgery happened. The next week, they went to the primary care doctor. The primary care doctor system is not going to talk to the hospital system and say, hey, guess what? The patient popped in for a physical, or the patient reported a fever. Or if they go to a nursing home to get well, or a home health care agency, or outpatient therapist, these systems aren't talking to each other. There is this holy grail one day that perhaps they will, but I'll be retired by then, hopefully. Um, or it's probably going to take another 100 years to happen. So we had to develop a system to kind of follow up with people. And I guess what they were doing today was basically like what, what they call posted note and telephone calls, which is call the person every day or call their mom or call their kids every day to find out where they were. So we developed a system called we call CareLink where 
it just answers these four basic questions, which is where is the patient? How are they feeling? Do they need immediate attention? You know, and maybe one one other around sort of like uh, the 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 number of days left in their bundle, so we know how much long we got to keep track of them. But we rely on some basic ways for nursing homes to communicate. They use a tech. They use a, we've developed an app so they can just click what we call a 10 second update. Like, where is this patient? How are they doing? They're here. They're doing fine, or they need immediate attention. So we had to develop a, a you know, text-based, integrated text-based. Um, we even have like automated calling where it calls the patients directly um, through an automated messaging IVR system uh, through app-based methodology. But that kind of in a nutshell, that may be part of why this country has such like uh, challenges in healthcare where we have these amazing EMR systems that cost billion dollars to implement. We have amazing technology, but it's hard to do that really basic thing, which is to file, find out where the patient's located for any days. And maybe the, maybe the watches that come along will help people do that or smartphones, but some of these Medicare patients don't even have a phone, so it's really tough sometimes. Um, and these Medicare patients are the ones that are, that are the most, are the sickest and obviously need the most help and where the expenditure is the most. So we need more clever solutions that go, that, that build outside of today's EMR infrastructure. And EMR companies really don't want to share their data with other EMRs for, yes. for whatever reason. It's so hard to get data out of there. Exactly. It's like, um, you know, it's just they don't make it super easy, even though they're supposed to have some interpreters. Practically, it's not super easy. There's a lot of complaining in, in, the, in the industry, and you would know that, about uh, EPIC blocking communications with other systems, being kind of the dominant alpha uh, <laughs> entity. Yeah. So par I think part of the problem is, it, uh, is when policies were written under the Obama administration to encourage use of electronic health records, uh, people didn't sufficiently think through the problem of, uh, you know, what would be the vendors selling the platform, would they be able to speak to each other, et cetera. And then I think part of it is it just follows from the prior fragmentation in the system. So each entrepreneur, each, on, each system, Epic, other systems that wanted to do health records went in there, and there was no sense of trying to unify it. So I think it's, some of this I think could have been foreseen, some is a problem of, I think, symptomatic in the system. I just want to point out two, oh, to ask your question, then I'll go ahead. Well, I was just going to throw out there that, um, so that might be something that Apple does bring to the table, depending upon to what degree they open up the personal health record data to developers to be able to access it and then come up with innovative apps that can be useful to patients, because that's the biggest challenge is right. right now, the data that we get is pretty meaningless. Um, you know, the, mm, steps I, and yeah. information that's in a silo based upon sensors that aren't calibrated, so yeah. One of the, one of the other issues that I see though too is I've seen some, I've seen some interesting middleware platforms that can, can kind of do that linkage, but what happens is there's some, there's some reluctance from the payers and the providers to, to lose that touch with the customer, to put another person in between them and, and their customer because everything's becoming so customer-centric and that's kind of their focus. But So uh, dis disappointing in that regard, but at some point in time, I mean, we're going to have to shake this up to, to, mm -hmm. to figure out how to create that interoperability. Or, uh, and frankly, I would just like to be in charge of my own medical record. I'd just like to own it myself on my phone. You know, and take it with me wherever wherever I go, and plug it in, and keep track of it that way. So, so Apple had bought Glimpse, and they were focused on circumventing the HIPAA issue by keeping everything local. And ultimately, when you get down to it, 
good old facts. That's the basic way that you can get your own data into your own device. Right. Fax it to yourself. One of you was talking about risk, and here uh, I've got to point out the multiple uh, players against you in the US when you're, you're uh, developing anything, whether it's uh, drugs or devices. You've got the FDA, uh, FTC, HHS, uh, and uh, now the state attorney general offices. Uh, th there's a, a recent uh, episode uh, where uh, Schneiderman, the uh, attorney general of New York, uh, uh, imposed a fine on a company that came up with a portable ECG. Uh, they, even though they, they didn't have legally to uh, substantiate their claims, uh, they were accused of uh, not being accurate enough and, and mm. uh, sued by them and you know, I had a fine from the Attorney General. The other thing also is that you have situations like apps, uh, and most apps are in that category where if you actually just download the app, you don't know that you're implicitly uh, giving permission for the app to be, for your data on the app to be uh, shared with third parties. And there are several class action lawsuits now taking place in the U.S. against uh, this kind of uh, breaching of data or unauthorized uh, sharing of data. It actually, as a consumer, if you really read all the small prints, you'll see it. Most people don't do it. They, they download the app and then they don't realize that their data are no longer owned by them. They, they are shared. Other yep, questions? One more question. Okay. Hi, I'm Haley. I'm going to go full circle all the way to the beginning where you talked about um, especially recruiting and looking for people with passion. And I'm curious, we've talked about so many of these broken systems or legacy systems and a lot of the intractable issues in healthcare. How do you um, sustain or maintain momentum and passion in each of your organizations given the sort of complexity of healthcare as it exists? So just to give an example, when I started my career, there was the largest breakthrough in computing uh, in many decades, which was the IBM XT, which was the thing the size of a house, which was a desktop computer. And the fact that, and it didn't even have the graphical interface. Uh, and so you had to learn how to program. And I share that because uh, there's always going to be complexities in this world. There's always going to be issues that you need to go and solve. Uh, but just look how far we've come. Uh, in terms of where science has come, where medicine has come, uh, what we can do together now, the level of connectivity we have, and then you. Uh, you're going to put your minds to these problems and you're going to come up with solutions to them. And in 10 years from now, we'll be sitting in the audience, you'll be on the panel, and you'll be talking about the progress you've made in the next generation of issues. So what I'd say, Haley, is there's, uh, I'm incredibly hopeful. And when I come to events like this with my fellow panelists and with you, what I see is hope and optimism. Uh, and yes, these are, these are tough problems to go and solve. Uh, but I know if you put dedicated time to it, we'll move a step forward. And then the next issue will come. <coughs> yeah, for me, it's just if you can make an impact on one person's life. That's, that's what this is. This, this is. this is an industry with a purpose. And, and we have that opportunity. And it's not just one person. We can, we can impact the quality of life and for, for thousands and hundreds and millions. And, you know, so that's what keeps us going. So yeah. why don't we just very quickly, uh, any final thoughts on any of these issues or other issues from our panelists? 
think what I would say in terms of general recommendations that I give as a professor to uh, all of the students uh, teaching in different schools is um, one, cast a wide net, okay? Uh, one, one, uh, one theme that emerges from all of us is many, many sectors now are involved in healthcare. Many companies are new to healthcare with deep resources, like all the infotech companies, for instance. So don't just look at at your at your sus usual suspects. Second, uh, try to build a portfolio. So, uh, for instance, I had given uh, you that, that kind of advice. Um, when you have a, a special project, uh, capstone, CSS, uh, uh, etc., choose a topic that's going to not only uh, fit your career objective, but also allow you to do as part of the project, not just spend your life in a library or, or on the internet, but interview experts. Uh, it's much, much easier for you uh, to go to someone like Simon or someone like Greg and, and, and to, to uh, contact them and to say, I would love to have your expert viewpoint on the topic I'm researching. I'd be glad to share findings with you. It's much, much better than to say, oh, here's my resume among a million others, and can you take a look at it? So try to uh, establish that kind of relationship. Also, network. Go to conferences. There, there are conferences and meetings at Columbia all the time in all the schools. Try to get, uh, try to get uh, in, in those circuits. Um, there's a, there's a so several sources on the internet. One is Biospace, biospace.com, that lists all of the conferences taking place. Uh, so many of them are around the New York area. Uh, network, attend these conferences. Uh, sometimes you can get free passes if you're a student. So uh, just uh, uh, build a portfolio and, and network as much as you can. Great. Well, please join me in thanking our wonderful panelists. Thank you for joining us. And again, thank you all for fantastic comments. You've all given wonderful perspectives and lots of wonderful advice. So thank you. Thank you.